0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, a podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, I have the incredible honor to have with me, possibly the most uh, meaningful guest to ever come on the show. He's a former commander in the U.S. Navy, whose resume is just, frankly, ludicrous. It includes being the commanding officer of a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier battle group, being senior military advisor to the deputy secretary of defense, serving as the 40th inspector general for the entire U.S. Navy, which is makes him the highest ranking Jew on the seas. He's former Vice Admiral Herman Shalansky, and we're going to talk about service. So uh, let's set this thing up. So if you set out to tell the story of the five books of Moses in the Bible, I think most people would tell roughly... Uh, The Hollywood version, right? The Israelites go from a small family in Mesopotamia and then Canaan to slaves in Egypt to being liberated by God from their shackles to wandering through the desert for 40 years to finally arriving at the shores uh, of the promised land. And look, that version is not wrong, but purely as a summary, the most glaring thing it leaves out is that along the way to the promised land, the Israelites actually fight a lot of battles against those who threaten them or seek to take advantage of their vulnerability or I mean, the, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the people of Ared. And by the same token, they refuse to take up arms against others like the Edomites on moral theological grounds. So in other words, there's an underrated amount of military thinking that goes on in the midst of this story. And I think part of the reason we tend to forget this stuff is not just because fighting, you know, strikes some people in a superficial sense is like not very biblically but also because I think most people, at least in today's English-speaking world, associate ancient Jews with the reputation of contemporary modern Jews, which runs roughly on a spectrum from like the cerebral ineffectuality of a Woody Allen to the harmless clownery of an Adam Sandler, and then you throw in a healthy dose of Seinfeldian or John Stewartian sarcasm, and you kind of have the standard picture of modern Jews. And look, that picture isn't totally wrong. There's a lot of That in the Jewish story, you know, Billy Crystal, Larry David, those guys don't come out of nowhere. They're heirs to a tradition of Jewish comedy, in a sense, like the episode we did with Jeremy Dauber. But stereotypes are not eternal typologies. And the fact is that once upon a time, the Jewish stereotype was quite different. Once upon a time, when Babylonians and later Hellenistic empires were a thing, the Jewish reputation was as a martial people. I mean, if you needed soldiers, you hired Jews. I mean, think of our historical evidence for the ancient Jewish community in Egypt, say during the era of the Second Temple, wearing my historian's hat now. So outside of Alexandria, basically the only evidence we have is from Jewish military colonies like Elephantine. Later, during the second century, after two massive Jewish rebellions against the Roman Empire, there are more Roman soldiers per capita stationed in the land of Israel than anywhere else in the entire Roman Empire. So what if we looked at the heritage of the Hebrew Bible from the ancient Israelites down to the modern day from this angle? What does it mean to be a soldier? What can it teach us? What are the perils it presents? What can the wider society or perhaps other minority communities specifically learn from this element of the Jewish heritage about being willing to fight in a world in which you're a tiny minority? So to unpack all of this, I figured I'd bring on the highest ranking, most decorated military officer I could find... Talk about it. He's the former Inspector General of the U.S. Navy. He's Vice Admiral Herman Shalansky. Admiral, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me, Ari. And uh, it's a
2: real pleasure to be here and to to be able to kind of tell some stories. And I think, you know, I always warn people: you uh, hand a sailor a microphone, and you're likely to get a lot of sea stories. So, (laughs) so hopefully that's good uh, with the theme you have today, because you know. For me personally, and I think for a, a lot of the, my fellow Jews, you know, we consider ourselves Jewish warriors. And you talked about the beginning, right? When Moses, you know, when the people just crossed the sea and, you know, they're immediately attacked. And, you know, there's leadership there. You know, Joshua steps up and, you know, he's like the first commander. You don't hear much about him, but all of a sudden his name is there. Some guy stands up, brings people together and fights people off. So to begin with, it's like for me, it's always been sort of foundational principles and my Jewish heritage, what was I raised with? What are the things that make me who I am? What are the things that, uh, you know, Judaism talks about? And certainly, you know, talk about the prowess of uh, ancient Jewish warriors. You know, one of the first, you know, statements in the Bible is when uh, Moses says, uh, Adonai is a warrior, right? He talks about that like right up front. because. God was with us, fighting and helping us fight, and we drew great source of pride and power to circumvent the you know the horrors and the fear of the battlefield. Because look, any warrior who goes onto the battlefield has fear. You know, I, I've been in wartime situations, Cold War, Iraqi War, and there's always this thing that people think that um, what's courage that it's. it's that you have no fear, people are, have courage. It's really not that, it's really about the ability to overcome fear. And why? How can you do that? Well, because you're grounded in some type of principle, some type of faith, some type of foundation. And you know that you're ready to do something that's more important, that you know you may put your life at stake. And what's more important than that? Well, there are lots of things. And there, and, but you've got to have that foundational principle. What are we doing for our religion? What are we doing for our country, United States of America? You know, those are really strong pieces that motivate uh, and allow those soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen at any time on the battlefield to overcome what is prevalent. And that's fear and to do the job. So, yeah, I, I have to hand it to the early Israelites as they, as they came across. Um, and, you know, there's good leadership and there's bad leadership. And there's, you know, you look, there's a lot of uh, interesting thoughts about Moses as a leader. And, you know, we consider him one of our greatest leaders of all time. Certainly uh, the first uh, of many to to really lead the Jewish people. But he, he did it in a time and place that was really hard because, you know, we talk about in the Navy, you put, come together, you're building a team, right? And you got to. Got all these people kind of rowing in the same direction, and you know you got to motivate them. They have to trust you. You have to give them the things they need to succeed. And Moses did a lot of that. I mean, he made a lot of mistakes. I mean, and that's that's okay because you know I, I can't say that my 38 years in the United States Navy I didn't make mistakes. I made a lot of them. At least I had the leaders for me that would be able to see and help me overcome those, learn from my mistakes, and become a better a better person and a better officer in that. So. Lots of great stories in there. And, you know, for me, as I as through my career, I had to build a team. It's remarkable to look back and see what what people had to do, which had much less background and kind of training. Because uh, truly, I went through a lot of training to get to where I was. So,
1: I mean, I can't wait to get into this. And I want to hear all the sea stories. You know, it's funny you talk about, you know, put a microphone in front of a sailor and you get sea stories. There's a great tweet. I can't remember where I saw it. That it was something to the effect of, you know, if you want to get two guys to feel really comfortable just being very vulnerable with each other and opening up, just put two microphones in front of them and tell them it's a podcast. So I'm really excited to get into this. (laughs) Um, So I want to start at the very beginning because I want to get into all the stories. But how did you find yourself in the military? What's your journey? How would you get started?
2: It is the right question. It's the question, really. So my dad was the doctor, right? the Jewish doctor. My mom was a nurse. And I was in college and I was pre-med. So I'm going to follow my dad. I love my dad.
1: So you're just a rampant stereotype. <laughs> Can,
2: it couldn't get any better, right? It couldn't right. get any better than that. Look, I but deep in, in my psyche, I loved history. I've always read history. I minored in history, even though I was a molecular biologist. And you can't help but understand in my journey what the United States of America has meant to choose. And especially after the Holocaust, after the power of this country, freeing Europe, you know, destroying Nazi Germany. It really made a sense to me that, you know, I grew up in a middle-class, privileged life. And I felt that I needed to give back. I needed to do something for my country. And so my, my theory was, I'm going to go in, I'm going to serve my country, I'm going to go in for one tour, then I'm going to get out and I'm going to pursue the ultimate dream of being you know, a doctor. So um, I joined what they call Aviation Officer Candidate School. Now, there's a great movie back in 19, I think it was 1983, called Officer and Gentleman. So if you've seen that movie, it kind of sets the stage. We had Marine Corps drill instructors. Classic. Yeah, it's just crazy. And by the way, you know, I'm going in as, I'm just a kid from Philly. Yes, I'm Jewish, but my my goal is and my focus is, you know, uh, serving my country. But that changed, like, in the first two weeks, because... In, in this process, we're run around and at to call us poopies. Remember, it's 19, I joined 1980. So 1980, things weren't, so the social acceptability things were a little bit different back then. So they ran us around and, you know, their goal was to get people to quit, what they call drop under criminals, D-O-R. And so they used these drill instructors, Marine Corps drill instructors. Now, Gunnery Sergeant Buck Welcher, United States Marine Corps, was my, was my gunny. And he was a mean sob. He was tall, lean, recon ranger from Vietnam War, had shrapnel like all over his body.
1: The so right out of central Cass. Oh my God. He didn't fail to like get, get into us. So,
2: after the two weeks, if you survived that, out of the 38, there were about 19 of us that survived that first two weeks. He had us in line. We got to put on real nice uniforms, fine, They got to get a shower. And he says, Hey, the first thing we're going to do here is, you know, establish officers for the class. And the first one I wanted to do is class treasurer. So I want all the business majors in this class to step forward. So two people step forward. You know, we're online. You have to actually step forward. And he gets up to him and he goes to candidate Dobson. He goes, Dobson, where'd you go to school? But Dobson goes, well, I went to University of Maryland, sir. He goes, well, we all know that weirdos went to De- you know, Delaware. You're not going to do it. Get back in line. <laughs> and it did the same thing with the, you know, this other uh, candidate, Clark. And she steps back. And then he goes, better yet, are there any Jews in the class? And I'm going, really? <laughs> so, of course, I step forward. I'm using my peripheral vision to see, well, maybe there's another Jew in the class, but no. So he comes up to me and gets that big smoky the Bear with the hat with the big brim, and he pokes it in my forehead and he goes, Shalansky, we all know that the Jews own half the world and will mortgage the other half. You are going to be our class treasurer. So I was like, oh, <laughs> good gracious. So that was the beginning of it. And, you know, and then we had this announcing system. And so right away he gave me a call sign, which was, if you've seen Top Gun, everyone's got a call sign.
1: I was going to get into Top Gun later. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, here
2: I am an aviation officer candidate. My first call sign is the Heeb, And so, <laughs> so Gunny would call me he'd, and he'd get on the announcing system and he'd say, get down here. I need you. I was like, everyone knew who I was. So, you know, that whole thing was a challenge, right? I mean, Let me tell you, he wasn't prejudiced against Jews. He did this in multiple ways to try to test people, poke at them. Hey, is is being Jewish going to be a weakness for you? You know, are you going to, if you like singled out as being a Jew, is that going to make you quit? And I used it as a source of strength. And I said, okay, if I'm going to be the Jew, I'm going to be a Jew and I'm going to be the best that there can be here. So I'm going to rise to this challenge. And I'm going to show the gunny and everyone else what it means to be a Jew. So I don't know if you want to call it my like hineni moment, but here was, you know, calling out. No expectation took me totally by surprise about what this meant.
1: It reminds me of how how Joseph gets called into Pharaoh's court, right? Like he's a young Hebrew man and he comes in, he's the Hebrew, right? And he rises to the occasion. Yeah, right. And makes no bones about it. You know, he talks about God gave me this gift. And I'm
2: using it and you get in favor. And I, and I feel that, you know, God gives us all our own individual gifts and you live up to exactly uh, use that to the good, to the best of your ability to do the things uh, that are right. So, yeah. So I, after that, I felt, OK, this is um, wherever I went. I mean, I was Jewish. I was a Jew. I uh, held Jewish services on the carrier uh, in, a, in my aviation squadrons, held Passover seders for people. When I was captain of the Truman, I had a great Passover uh, Seder out at sea. So you know there's uh, at, uh, an aircraft carrier, you got a picture at first, it's a picture of the Empire State Building, and you lay that building on its side and you put new, two nuclear power generators, an airfield, you know 60 tactical aircraft on board that flight deck, and 5,200 people, and you send it to sea. So you know Jews make up a little less than one percent, so we would hold services and everything, but we had maybe at the total 60 Jews on out of that 5000 that were that would come to Shabbat and you know we decided we're going to do a um, Passover Seder you know the 60 of us got together and we cooked the meals we you know had stuff flown into the ship but it was like really popular so over 200 sailors wanted to come to the Passover Seder wow including you know the admiral of the the fleet who was on the carry with us the captain of the ship at the time uh, no, this was when I was squadron commander. The captain of the ship came down. The admiral came down, and so we're going through, you know, the whole lit- liturgy of uh, the service, and you know, we've got the wine cups. And first thing we do, you know, in the navy, you're not allowed to have alcohol at sea, except for religious occasions. So Friday night Shabbat, we used to get those little tiny cups, you know, about <laughs> quarter inch high by you know like an inch across, and we yeah put a little <laughs> bit of manischewitz in it, and you know, and and. So this is what we had. We had these little tiny cups of these wines. And the Admiral comes out and he's so into like the story of the Passover and freedom because, you know, it really rings true with what we're doing out there. We're the United States Navy. You know, we're about freedom. We're about keeping this country free. We're about freedom for the rest of the world too. And we're out, you know, in the middle of the Arabian Gulf and we're sailing and doing things that are really incredible. And, you know, we get to the part where he's, you know, filled a cup of wine. The animal looks around, he looks, see this little cup and he goes, what is this, Herm? And I said, well, that's, you know, what we're supposed to use. He goes, no, 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 no. Pour out this, wa- this water glass. We're filling up the cups. And by the way, <laughs> we're going to drink all four of these, just like it says in the book here. You know, we're following the <laughs> rules because we're the United States Navy. And by God, we're going to follow the instructions because that's what we do. And I was like, sure enough. We had like the happiest, you know, 200 sailors <laughs> and Manischewitz wine. Now, if you ever you drink a lot of Manischewitz wine, it's you can get drunk on it, but it's not the greatest buzz in the world.
1: But. <laughs> Manischewitz and Twitter is going to come after us. <laughs> <laughs> What this raises to me is like a fundamental conceptual question about what it means to be a Jew or any other or really any kind of relative latecomer to the American story in the military serving serving the country. We've talked about this on previous podcasts, but I, I'm so curious for your perspective on this because you've actually put your money where your mouth is. One thing that we've talked about frequently on the podcast is for someone like myself, for example, to feel a part of the American story involves a degree of almost like willing and happy suspension of disbelief but willing suspension of disbelief nonetheless because for example if you know if i wish to claim you know abraham lincoln as part of my heritage and it's something that i feel i feel a sense of pride on president's day for example you know at the time that lincoln was president My and all of my ancestors were kind of peasants in a, you know, in the Polish backwaters. You know, they were sort of like Galicianer peasants. And I think that's true for for most people. I mean, you know, we have a we have a relative in the family who just missed the Mayflower Club by like, you know, like an hour. (laughs) But 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 other than that, you know, how many Americans have been in this country for more than, you know, like four or five generations? Probably not too many. I'd venture to say not even a majority. But. So for someone like yourself or or someone in your or in your type of position who, you know, doesn't have those like kinship ties all the way back in the American past, what does it mean? And what's what does the process look like for you? And what's the mental model you use to kind of bring yourself into the American story?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, like yourself, I'm a second generation American. My grandparents came from Lithuania and
1: settled in Philly and You know, they were dirt poor,
2: and my dad worked his way up, became very successful. And so, second generation American. I think, you know, for me, it's understanding what America is and our country and what it stands for. And, you know, I think as Jews, we should feel exceptionally proud of what this country does and has done throughout its history. And when you read that history and you read the understanding, um, especially back you know, when this country was forming about the opportunity, you know, we got a constitution, but that wasn't really good enough, right? Because a lot of the states were uncomfortable with a federal power source, like centered power, and they wanted this Bill of Rights. And so the right people rose to the occasion to write this Bill of Rights. And oftentimes the story's lost that, you know, there's a guy You know, Thomas Jefferson, who helped write this part and others too that were instrumental in putting together the bill. And there was a there was a discussion up front. You know, what are you going to talk about religion? And there was there was this push to make it a Christian nation, right? And Jefferson purposely in the Virginia delegation, first in the state of Virginia, and then later made it freedom of religion, just that basic thing. I mean, where what other country, what other countries actually, besides Israel, of course, but You know, what other country ever said that to us, to Jews, to say, do what you want, be a Jew, you have freedom of religion. And I think that, in essence, for any American, right, for any religion, for Muslims, for Christians, for a variety of Christianity, you know, Catholics, Protestants, you know, Episcopalians, whatever you are, that makes a difference because you're not forced into something. I mean, there are many times in Christianity where, you know, nations broke away from the ruling Christian religion. And they, they didn't have the opportunity to practice as they saw fit, but here they did. Um, William Penn came over because of that, and multiple generations of Christians came here. And I think as anyone looks back on our history and says, that one thing, that one thing about freedom of religion is is instrumental in the understanding. And you know, as a guide, we're exceptionally proud and lucky to be in this country, and that's worth fighting for. That is It's worth stepping up to the plate. It's worth, you know, putting your life on the line to have that and maintain it and to continue it. So, and, you know, we talk about on the ships, you know, as captain, when I was captain of the ship, we're very concerned about religion, right? And faith. And because faith does drive you and inspires people and gives them passion for what they do. They have to have this higher calling, um, serve our country, serve our nation, serve our God. And we made available... Services, multiple services for every denomination, and we took time out of our busy schedule to have church services to have Shabbat every night. There's a tradition; this goes back to the days of sail, where you would have the evening prayer, and you know you ring. This is at nine fifty or twenty one fifty every night, Navy time. (laughs) You ring the bells and you say, and the voice of mate gets on the announcer and just says, "Stand by, quiet about the decks, stand by for the evening prayer." So the whole ship becomes quiet. We have, you know, one of the lay leaders or one of our chaplains get on board and give a non-denominational prayer to inspire, you know, to sort of set our understanding of what happened during the day and what's coming tomorrow. And, you know, how do you get to reconnect with our faith, whatever that faith is, but we do that every night. And that really helps set our sailors into a path of, I feel connected. I don't feel lonely. I don't feel away. I don't feel, you know, it's that I'm really doing something that's important and it's, and I feel connected to my faith and I feel inspired from that. So there's a big tradition in the Navy with that and a great understanding. I think a lot would be lost without it. And I was a big, big fan of uh, encouraging that and getting people Their services so that they could have that time.
1: So, given the importance of let's call it acts of service for building and maintaining a healthy society, so every now and again you hear voices, whether it's you know cultural figures, columnists, politicians, or what have you, muse about whether the U.S. should have some sort of mandatory national service program. Have you ever given that any thought? I have, I
2: have, no, without a doubt. Look, I, I think the volunteer navy, volunteer military in general. There's a lot to say for that because you have people that, that want to do this job. But there's something that lost that's lost also. And I think I really like the Israeli system. And I think national service, you know, going in and serving, whether it's just two years, or whether you're in the military or you're doing some type of national service, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of it. I really think it would help bring this country together. I think people would have that basis of, I served, I did this. And I was with those other people, different people of different colors and different races and different religions. And They would know more. They'd be more educated. And look, I, I, you know, throughout my career, even though luckily in my generation, I didn't, didn't see really overt prejudice or anti-Semitism. I found a lot of ignorance, right? You know, you, you, hey, what did you, you know, what, tell me about that? And it's like, okay. And that's an opportunity, I think, for people to really understand each other because you're thrown in. You don't get to choose who your bunkmates are. I mean, you're just put in with all these different sailors and uh, soldiers and Marines, and you get to learn and appreciate a diverse outlook of America. And I don't know any other way, you know, to really get that, unfortunately.
1: So you often hear, I mean, speaking of like you often hear folks both within the U.S. military and without talking about the danger of developing like like a warrior class, meaning having a military that only recruits from a particular socioeconomic or ethnic or what have you class of people. Like it's bad to have most of a society disconnected from what it takes to protect a society or even, you know, like what you just described, you know, volunteering in soup kitchens or in orphanages, like what it takes to sustain a society. But I sometimes think that this is problem is downstream of a larger issue, namely that it's really hard to sustain devotion to a larger project over a long period of time such that people are willing to make sacrifices on behalf of that project. It's just very hard to do that. And one way to look at the problems we face as a country and a society is just that America is reaching a point where it's just getting harder and harder for most people to care passionately one way or another about what happens to it. And I say that as a lament. And the truth is, if I think of a work that engages in a really sophisticated way with this very problem, it's actually the Bible, right? Like one of the central questions the Bible wrestles with is, is it possible to transmit devotion to a project across generations. Right now, one answer you find in the Bible is that there's something about belonging to a family, right? Say the family of Abraham that holds people together. But how would you approach this if you're thinking about how to hold Americans together, right? On the one hand, our strength is in our diversity, our ability to welcome anyone into the American covenant as it were. So maybe we're just too diverse to make use of the family model. But on the other hand, is there maybe something we can learn from the biblical heritage of passing down wisdom and devotion, right? Or maybe not. Like, how do you think about this question? What are the ties that bind us?
2: Yeah, well, I, that's a tough one. And I think, you know, I could have run on a presidential ticket had I got
1: this one right because, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, what what does bind us together? And I think, you know, for this country, again, being an amateur historian and and loving the history, like the Bible, if you read the things that are the foundational pieces of what started the Jews out on their journey and what did, you know, what did God tell the people that they're supposed to do? You know, it's, it, it's very similar to this nation. I mean, we, we look at freedom, okay? In the revolution, we had freedom, we had freedom of Great Britain. It was more economical and independence. It wasn't freedom of slavery yet, but that came. So, you know, it grew into that. Uh, it would have been nice if it happened at the same time, but did not. And you know, what does what does hold us together? Well, this foundational principles of Americans, just like foundational principles of Israelites. In fact, you know, a lot of the early discussions were about, and in the revolution time, some of our founding fathers looked back a lot to you know the Bible and the Israelites and their lessons and about how to how they gained their freedom and created a nation and how they lived and had a focus of what you know, they're supposed to be in terms of, you know, you have a mission, you have a covenant with God, and you're supposed to do these things, right? You're supposed to be a guide for all of the nations. Well, I kind of think we're the same in many respects, that United States has a place of power, it has a place of goodness. And if only we could transmit that common theme of who we are and what we bring to not just us as a nation and people, but to the world. And we've done that in many
1: respects. Right, Lincoln referred to us as an almost chosen nation. Yeah, right.
2: And it's we could learn a lot more from that, and we just don't hear it enough. I always find you know there's a lot of power in words, and certainly the Bible is a powerful word, and how that transmits to our existence is powerful. But you know today's politicians, you know across the board, tend not to utilize some of those lessons and some of those words and inspiring things that would you know, bring us together as a nation.
1: Okay. Top gun. Yeah. Overrated or underrated? Overrated or underrated? (laughs) Oh, it's a great movie. It's a great summer movie.
2: You know, uh, it's uh, fun, you know, and it's funny because I wasn't really a Tom Cruise fan. And then, you know, in his opening remarks in the movie, I thought that was really good. And his relationship. So during the movie that he was filming the movie, uh, one of my best friends, was the uh, commander of Naval Air Forces. So we call him the Air Boss. He's in charge of all naval aviation. And so while they were filming it, he was the guy that Tom Cruise had to interact with. And Tom Cruise was really spectacular in terms of his relationship and understanding and appreciation of our sailors and our aviators and that culture. And wow. he did a great job about capturing that kind of. Uh, spirit, that arate of being, a, I'm an aviator and you know I'm better than you. Because we, in aviation, uh, we are very competitive. And there's something really good about that because we're always trying to be the best. It's a great model for businesses because you know, you've got a mission, you get ready to do it, and you spend a lot of time training to be competent. And then that mission, that day, you do a full briefing, you know intelligence brief, weather brief, mission brief, you do emergency procedures, then you fly it, right? Then you're out there, you're doing your thing for maybe five, six hours. You come home and you go right into the debrief. What went right? What went wrong? What can I do to be better? It's really this really critique of everything you did during the flight. And nowadays we can record it. You can look back on the screen. You can see, you know, your calls you made were wrong, what turn you made wrong. And, you know, we cherish that. We thrive to get that feedback. And why is that? Because we want to be the, be, you know, maverick, right? We want to be that guy that can, you know, pull nine G's. A little unrealistic, but...
1: <laughs> Tom Cruise? No. <laughs> yeah. So
2: to get Tom Cruise credit, he was in the backseat. He really wanted to fly the airplane himself, but the air boss wouldn't let him. But that's okay. <laughs> I mean, he was out there. And a lot of those scenes are actual scenes in the airplane and they're really, really good. So the accuracy, you know, the, the plot, of course, is a little far-fetched, but it makes it exciting. The flying is all realistic. The culture he captured very nicely when the young aviators come in and they're joshing with each other. We're just like that. It's really, really captured and made it, uh, made it fun.
1: Okay, so what's your favorite sea story to tell? You're at a party, you know, you're at a Shabbos table, you're at a bar with friends, whatever. You're, what's your favorite sea story, like your go-to?
2: you know, found
1: myself when I was captain of the Truman, which I got to say, you
2: know, at 38 and a half years in the Navy, I had two and a half years in command of the USS S. Truman, which was like a real honor to be on the Truman. Because first of all, Truman, a great president, did multiple things. First to recognize Israel, established NATO, finished World War II, first to desegregate the military. I mean, the man was really phenomenal. And he was a guy that didn't graduate college. You know he's a haberdasher, and you know his best friend in World War One was this Jewish guy in his regiment, and they were lifelong friends. They opened up a shop together, right? They opened up, uh, they sold hats together and ties, and and uh, there's some stories about him being a, a shopaholic for some of his neighbors. And so, <laughs> you know, there's this real connection, I think, and for me personally, to be the captain of the Truman because. One of the traditions is that when I walk on board the ship, they don't say, Hey, here I'm Shalansky's coming or Captain Shalansky arriving. I adopt the name of the ship. So it's ding, ding ding, ring the bell ding 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 ding, Truman arriving. When I leave, ding 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 ding, Truman departing, because I become the essence of the ship. I, I adopt that. Wow. And so we went on wartime deployment and we were coming back. Uh, this is, you know, the Iraqi war and we're coming back and it was the anniversary, the 60th anniversary of Israel. and We were off the coast of Israel and we flew in some folks from the Knesset and some scholars, some, some survivors from the Holocaust, really to tell, you know, to talk to the crew. And I mean, it was a great couple of days uh, with them visiting. And, you know, we flew some people into Israel to, to coordinate some of this. Anyways, it just occurred to me, like, here we are in the Truman, and we should have, uh, in honor of the, of the 60th anniversary of Israel, and Truman recognizing that, we need to have a ceremony and get a Torah on board the ship. So when we got back, we put together this, you know, this plan. We're gonna, so where are we going to get a Torah? So there was this institute that had Torahs from the Precious Legacy that they found in Prague. You know, after the war, actually after the fall of the Iron Curtain, you know, a lot of Judaica was stashed in this museum. So they got this one Torah because it was from Lithuania, which was kind of special to me because my parents from, from Lithuania, my grandparents. And so there's this beautiful, I mean, this huge Torah. And they brought it into England and got someone to fix it up because I guess it would have been damaged, kosher it and make it ready for the ship. Well, lo and behold, you know, Truman, when he recognized Israel, Herzog happened to be in New York and came down and brought with him a little Torah. Wow. I love this. Right? He brought him a little Torah as a gift. It was a family that owned this Torah. And that Torah, interestingly enough, was flown all over Europe. This family had dedicated this to the Jewish chaplain corps to take this all over Europe. So this one Torah had been like during World War II all over the place. And it came back after the war, and Herzog got it. He gave it to Herzog, and Herzog gave it to the president. And Truman goes, oh, I've always wanted one of these. And, you know, of course, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. Well, anyway, we decided that it, during this ceremony, I called the museum. I called an in independence museum, Missouri, the Truman Foundation and Library. I said, hey, I want to borrow the Torah. The Torah, you can't have our Torah. No, I just want to borrow it for a ceremony, because we're going to dedicate another Torah. But we want the Truman Torah to come to the ship. And they said, well, sir, I don't know if we can do that. We don't really let anything out of the library. So, look, I can guarantee you a military escort, 24-hour guards, and I'm going to fly an airplane out there. We're going to pick the Torah up, and we're going to fly it back.
1: That's how we usually take the Torah out of the ark in our synagogue, full escort.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, sure enough, they said, okay. And I invited, of course, you know, the curator of the museum to come out. And, you know, we brought it out. And here on the flight deck, so the flight deck's like, Picture three football fields, right? And we have this podium, and we invite the Jewish community, we invite the community at Hampton Roads, which is where we live, which is in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the largest naval station in the in the world, on you know the biggest, most badass aircraft carrier war fighting ship in the world, and we have six hundred people in our hangar bay watching this Torah dedication. So we had our Torah, and sitting next to it the Truman Torah, and. You know, we talked today about what does this mean? What's important about this? You know, of course, it's important to the Jews that served and the Jewish community to see something really so amazing on a Navy ship, right? But more important for that was, you know, that our crew who had, you know, were kind of clueless. What's a Torah? What is that, sir? What's going on? You know, we got to explain to them, hey, this is the Bible, man. This is the thing that, you know, it's all based on, right? This is where it all comes from. And they were amazed. And we had the full ceremony. We had our cantor from our local synagogue sing and dedicated it and then took it up to the chapel and read the Torah for the day. And, you know, the most important thing about that is like, you know, here's a ship, a Navy ship. And on it, you know, I always always love to talk about there's this Torah that was supposed to be, you know, was stuck in this museum in Prague because it was going to be displayed in a Nazi museum that was going to, Be about the extinct race of Jews. That was going to be the name of the museum. You know, an exhibit that really talks about and represents, you know, destruction, death, and hatred in sort of a new world order had the Nazis really won. But now it's an ironic twist that here's this Torah, and it's sailing on the most powerful ship in the world, you know, for freedom, friendship, and peace. Just a concept of knowing that that Torah, and today it's out there right now in the Mediterranean. That's where the Truman is, that's where our Torah is. Sailing for freedom and it just made me so proud and our crew so proud to have this on board our ship
1: Wow I can't think of a better way to to end the podcast, but I, I have one last question for you oh, that's a beautiful story one last question for you okay you've now had you know 38 and a half years of experience in the in the us Navy you've served at the highest levels you've you've been responsible for so many people so many things you've seen it all what advice would you give? To that kid thinking about med school, thinking about the Navy, if you could give one piece of advice now, what advice would you give? I'd say do it. I'd
2: say to be a warrior, even if it's a short time, even if it's a one tour type of thing, you will learn so much about yourself. You will find out who you are. You will grow. You will be more alive because of the things that you're doing than anything, any endeavor that I think you could ever choose otherwise.
1: Wow incredible. Admiral Shalansky, thank you so much for being here. This is an absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Ari. It's my pleasure, and I
2: really appreciate the time you've given me and look forward to hearing your podcasts over and over.
1: Thanks. You heard it, folks. That is the command coming down from the very top. Listen, subscribe to Good Faith Effort. Unbelievable. Look, it's definitely important to remember the elements of biblical thought that are suspicious of military prowess. The idea, for example, that ultimately there's something incompatible between King David's soldiering on the one hand and his aspiration to build God's temple on the other. But we'd be absolutely unfaithful to the biblical worldview if we ignored the Bible's lessons about the virtues of military service. There simply is no Israelite society without those willing to take up arms in its defense from Joshua to Gideon to David and beyond. So how do we square that circle? I think one way to think about this is to contrast the biblical world with the Greek one. And in the world of Greek myth, you want warriors for the sake of warriors, right? Laertes is a great warrior, but his son, Odysseus, is better. Peleus is a great warrior, but his son, Achilles, is better. And that's the ideal. You want your children to become better and better and better warriors, because being a warrior is the ideal. But in the biblical world, each warrior's highest aspiration, even if it's fundamentally unrealistic, is to be the last warrior. A mighty warrior like David wants to give rise to a King Solomon, whose name literally is derived from the ancient Hebrew word for peace. And in that respect, the warrior tradition that Admiral Shlansky describes is so important because it's in service to something greater than war. It's in service to the cause of justice, liberty, and ultimately peace. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a Good Faith Effort. I'll see you next time.
0: Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at G Faith Effort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com Studios.com slash goodfaith effort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at soulshopstudios Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop_studios, underscore studios. And check out SoulShopstudios.com.